Hi guys, it's Ange. So, crimes taking place in the Victorian era are a great place to learn about the social history of Britain. And one of the biggest reasons was during the Victorian era, they had an obsession with crime. You have to remember that they only had their daily newspapers didn't have TV or the internet or Netflix. <laughs> so any entertainment that they received was from the newspaper and when a crime was committed, oh, it was written about. And most of the time it was written in verbatim because the newspapers knew that those papers would get sold. And I believe they usually came out in the morning and then they had like an evening paper kind of like our local news networks. True crime papers such as Illustrated Police News were popular. As Judith Flanders describes in her book, The Invention of Murder, industries grew up to service the public's appetite for the more gruesome murders of the day. Balladeers sold songs about famous killings, pamphlets full of speculation, and gory details were hawked on the street corners. Guides ran tours of the murder sites, and theaters put on plays based on real police investigations. At the same time, journalists and researchers such as Jack London, Charles Dickens, and Henry Mayhew journeyed into the underworld to report on what they found. These sources reveal a brutal world in which the struggle for survival, the harsh consequences of breaking moral taboos, and the lack of social net led many to adopt creative and sometimes cruel ways to get by. The first crime we'll talk about is a crime stealing people's clothes. Nowadays, a thief would much rather steal your car, your cell phone, your wallet, credit card. But in the 1800s, clothes might have been the most valuable things people possessed. There were street, street markets given over to selling used garments, often still filthy from their last owners. And the courts were full of people being prosecuted for stealing an overcoat, a pair of boots, or a pair of stockings. Thieves would steal clothes by harvesting them from washing lines. And it was called snowing, breaking into a person's home or through highway robbery. Games would pounce on a washerwoman taking clothes to, to drying grounds and steal their laundry baskets. The most interesting were the skinners, kindly women who lured well-dressed children into an alley then proceeded to strip them of their clothes and boots before sending them off in just their underwear. The incidence of the Skinner is what I'm referring to in the episode of Who Do You Think You Are? It was actually a young girl, probably around 12 or 13, lured about an 8 or 10 year old into a bathroom stripped her of all her clothes 
and the little girl was sent off crying. The little girl that stole the clothes was caught and was sent to a penal colony in Australia. Another crime often committed was conspiring to have family members committed to asylums. As Sarah Wise describes in her book, Inconvenient People, there were a good number of cases where people were committed to lunatic asylums by their nearest and dearest for entirely selfish reasons. Since diagnostic systems for me mental illness were at an early stage of development and there was no consensus over what and was not evidence of lunacy, doctors were able to argue that people who were eccentric in some way, rather than clearly ill, should be committed to an asylum, losing control of their affairs in the process. This gave an opportunity for unscrupulous relatives to gain control of the unfortunate person's money. Some of these cases were taken to court and reported widely, with rival doctors arguing over whether the person was mad or simply eccentric. But it wasn't just for the sake of money. Edith Lancaster was a young feminist who decided to live with her lover without getting married. Her family found this intolerable. And in 1895, her father and two brothers captured her and had her locked in, a, in an asylum in Roehampton. This was endorsed by Dr. Burroughs, who declared that Ms. Lancaster's decision equated to a threat of committing social suicide and was therefore evidence of irrationality. He diagnosed her with suffering from a specific monomania related to her attitudes towards marriage. Lucky for her, the lunacy commissioners came to inspect the asylum two days later and freed her. As we talked about earlier, newspapers played an important role in reporting these insane crimes. So, there's a book called 10 Days in a Madhouse, and it was written by Nellie Bly, who was a newspaper reporter in the Victorian era. So Nellie Bly wrote 10 Days in a Madhouse, and it was initially published as a series of articles in the New York world. And they were later compiled into a book. So. Nellie, the story goes, Nellie Bly is a newspaper reporter and she's looking, as they all did, for something fascinated that will catch the true crime aficionados of the day's world by storm. So she is deciding what she's going to do. And she contacts her editor and says that she has an idea that she is going to impersonate an insane person and get herself sent into a madhouse. Her editors were not liking this idea at all. They did not want her to do this. So eventually she convinces them and she gets herself locked away into this madhouse. And when she's in the madhouse, she meets 
all of these people and the doctors and the nurses and the people that were actually there and most of them that she report that that she talks about were not mentally ill at all one's husband sent her there another person's family sent her there because she was poor and she needed she had health problems there were several people that were very sane the unfortunate part about this is there were actually insane people in this in this lunatic asylum that she went to and the like i said the unfortunate part is that they were mixed together so there was a lot of abuse yet you have to read 10 days in madhouse by nelly bly if you like yellow journalism and true crime you will love this story okay so as you can probably tell i read this book recently i could literally go on for days about it it was very good So another crime of the day was the impersonation of family members. Nowadays, most identity fraud is committed online. But before the days of DNA testing, there was a brand of fraud where people turned up in person claiming to be a lost family member in order to inherit the family wealth. Arthur Orton known as the Tickborn Claimant, was one of the most audacious when her son, Sir Roger Tickborn, was lost at sea. The wealthy Lady Tickborn put adverts in, pa in, the, in papers around the world searching for him. Orton, a butcher's son, wrote from Australia claiming to be him and asking for her to send him money. She did, but also pleaded with him to come home. He decided to give it a go, and when he arrived, the old woman welcomed him, welcomed him as her long-lost son. Even though Orton didn't have Sir Roger's posh accent, and weighed about 170 kilograms compared to her son's, who was 57 kilograms. When he began to, to claim the family estates, other rel relatives took legal action. The case took four years to come to court, during which time Lady Tickborn continued to believe he was her son. She died just before the case was heard. Meaning, he lost his most valuable witness. Nevertheless, he memorized an enormous amount of facts about Sir Roger's life, and managed to convince a hundred people to vouch for his identity. The case lasted 1,025 days, and in 1874, he was convicted and sentenced to 14 years hard labor. During his prison years, he insisted on being addressed as Lord Tickborn and would not respond to the name Orton. So, Charles Dickens writes in his book, Bleak House, about these insanely long trials and hidden family members. 
I'm sorry, not hidden family members, missing family members that would one day come out of the woodwork and be a long lost this one or that one. Um, Bleak House is, a, is another really good book, so if you get a chance, you should read it. Also, you can get it on Audible. It's pretty good, so I suggest that. Okay. So, what happened to these criminals when they were found out? What was their punishment? Convicted criminals were sentenced to fines, imprisonment, with or without hard labor, flogging, transportation to colonies, or death. In prison, hard labor involved in a range of unpleasant and useless tasks, like picking oakum. Picking oakum was one of their common punishments. They would take old pieces of rope from ships and they would pull each string out string by string day in and day out hour after hour now they didn't just make criminals pick oakum people who were in poor houses or or workhouses and the thing about the workhouses was most of the people in these workhouses were really unhealthy they were most of them most of them were malnutritioned they're sick and they're having these poor people take these tarry ropes and strand by strand separate them until their fingers bled and not only did they use this as a means of keeping them working they had them use these things called the crank and it had this like it was in a box with a ratcheted handle that had to be wound for hours on end while the tread, or cockshaper, was a giant wheel with foot treads in step formation. Prisoners had to make the wheel turn for hours on end by climbing and moving the steps. Other forms of hard labor included making prisoners break rocks or lift and move cannonballs back and forth across the courtyard all day. Now yes, these are hard labor prison sentences and I in modern day I understand that okay they're being punished but my heart goes out to the people in the workhouses because they were so unwell when they got there and their treatment was miserable to take a cannonball and have to walk half a football field and then back all day, every day. And if you didn't do it, they had guards. And if you didn't do these things a certain amount, or you didn't pick enough oakum, or you didn't turn the crank enough, you wouldn't have sometimes a bed. They would take your bed away. 
they would give you half rations for food, where they would, they would lower your amount of food substantially. Um, a lot of people, if, if my memory serves me, were, were killed in these workhouses. And I know we're not talking about workhouses today and we're talking about crimes, but it just makes me remember all the terrible stories. So. I digress. Harsh punishments were often given out for relatively minor offenses. For example, in 1888, George Thurgood left the workhouse, which housed homeless paupers, to look for a job. He was picked up and taken to the magistrates and sentenced to 15 days hard labor for searching for work in workhouse clothes. In 1871, 14-year-old Isaac Davis was sentenced to three months with hard labor for stealing 20 oranges and a packet of nuts. Hard times. When England was on the cusp of the Victorian era in the 1820s, there were more than 200 offenses that were punishable by death. They ranged in severity from mass murder to consorting with gypsies, but thanks to the so-called book, Bloody Code, all took the same toll, a public hanging by the 1860s. Only a handful of crimes were worthy of capital punishment. How could there be so many capital crimes in the Georgian and early Victorian era? What were the crimes? Another one of these crimes in the mid-18th century, historians say are especially violent and prejudiced against gypsies in England. From the top down, there were many laws that were intended to effectively banish them from the kingdom. A perfect example of this prejudice was making it a capital offense to be even be in their company for an extended period of time, specifically for more than one month. It's unclear why one month was the maximum exposure one could have to gypsies. What happened after that? One writer notes getting to the heart of the insanity of such a law murder of the king carried the same penalties as being in the company of gypsies. Another crime that carried out a capital punishment was strong evidence of malice in a child. This capital crime was intended for children between the ages of 7 and 14. To prove strong evidence of malice, prosecutors had to prove that the child didn't have the ability to tell right from wrong. There's no evidence of children on the youngest end of the range actually being executed during this bloody coat era. But there is a case from 1629 
John Dean, who was eight or nine years old, was executed for arson. Throughout this era, there was indeed cases of kids aged 12 to 18 who were executed for malicious crimes ranging from housebreaking to rape and murder. In 1908, the minimum age for execution was raised to 18. Another capital offense was cutting down young trees. Court documents from the Isle of Eli in 1821 reveal the thinking behind this one. A man executed for cutting down young trees in a plantation had also set fire to corn stacks and slashed fine horses and cows with a knife. But it was cutting down the trees that most offended the judge. Here's what the judge says. Cutting down young trees from malice to the owner is a great proof of malignity in the criminal and may be a much greater injury to the owner. For wealth may replace the corn and cattle, but the loss of the trees is irreparable, both to the owner and to the public. So this is gonna be our last bizarre crime with an outcome of that holds an outcome of the death penalty and that is writing a threatening letter one of the first people to be hanged for sending a threatening letter in england was jepeth big in 1729 his crime he tried to demand money with menaces In 1754, it became a capital offense to send any threatening letter, regardless of whether or not the sender was attempting blackmail. It wasn't just about the threats to civilian lives. The law was also intended to apply to those who sent threatening letters in the same social protest. So, Understanding the Victorians and crime. See, the Victorians had faith in progress, and one element of the faith was the conviction that crime could be beaten. From the middle of the 19th century, the annual publication of judicial statistics in England and Wales seemed to underpin their faith. Almost all forms of crime appeared to be falling. There are, of course, serious problems with official statistics of crime. How far might they be massaged by the police forces that collect them? Recognizing the problems with statistics, the overall decline in theft and violence seems to, be, to fit with other social data from the 19th century, assuring that theft can be generated by economic hardship, the economic downstrings of the second century, of the 19th century, of the second half of the 19th century, were generally not as serious, widespread, or life-threatening as those of the preceding centuries. Violent behavior was increasingly frowned upon. 
dealt with increasingly severely by the courts and seemed in consequence to have been brought under a greater degree of control. The new police forces uniformly established across the whole country in the mid-1850s and subject to annual inspections on behalf of Parliament, appear to have had some success suppressing those forms of public behavior that respectable Victorians considered rough and offensive. In doing so, they may well also have an impact on the petty opportunistic thefts in the streets. So, I mentioned a couple of books, um, Bleak House by Charles Dickens and Ten Days in a Madhouse by Nellie Bly. And the reason these two books are really interesting is because they, are, they take place in first hand. So their view of the world is, what when we look out the window, what we see. We see cars driving down the street, people on their cell phones. We see all of the modern things that we see of the day. And the good thing about Charles Dickens and Nellie Bly is first and foremost, they are both writers. They're journalists. Not only are they journalists, they're journalists from the Victorian era. And they're writing about, just as I said a few seconds ago, they're writing about what they're seeing when they look out their windows. Charles Dickens for one, was known for staying up all night long and walking up and down the streets of London. Nellie Bly was this in insanely smart young woman, and the ideas that she came up with were so beyond the era of, the of her time, and she took an amazing amount of risks. So those two I think you'll really enjoy, and I will see you all again soon. Bye!